Episode number 23, Bonnie Beecher. All right, cut to edge of stage. Great. All right, color frost. Check. One, two, three. Check. Stand by, please. Touch to half. Touch out. Letting cues one through ten. Welcome back to The Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I'm your host, Michael Cruz. In 1996, at the Tarragon Theatre in Toronto, I assisted for the very first time on a show called Frida Kay. A look into the psyche of the flamboyant artist Frida Kahlo, played by Allegra Fulton. It was directed by Peter Hinton and designed by Ken Garnham. The lighting designer was Bonnie Beecher. Bonnie Beecher's career exploded after that and has lit... Uh, over 250 productions in dance, opera, and theater. She now works internationally on new ballet and opera works in France and Germany, and her career has garnered her locally 12 Dora nominations and walking away with two. I sat down with Bonnie Beecher in May at Soul Pepper Theater in Toronto to talk about her work in life, about Sweet Charity at the Shaw Festival, and about her work on Dybbuk at Soul Pepper Theater last summer. But before we get to that interview, make sure to go to thetitleblock.com for show notes and share and like on Facebook forward slash the Title Block Podcast and on Twitter at the Title Block CA. If you like the show, please support us on patreon.com forward slash the Title Block Podcast. And now, my interview with lighting designer Bonnie Beecher. All right, I'm here with Bonnie Beecher at the wonderful. Uh, Soul Pepper Library, down at the Soul Pepper Theater in Toronto. Thanks for joining me on the title block. My pleasure. Excellent. Happy to be here. We've known each other for a long time. Yeah. I think that I assisted you very early in my career. Yes, I can't even remember on what. I think it was Frida Kahlo. You assisted me on that? I did. I took the show to Ottawa. Oh. Yeah. It was a long time ago. You did the show first, and then was the remount, I think. Right. Yeah, yeah. I love that show. Yeah. It was beautiful with Peter Hinton. Yes. We had a lovely time in Ottawa. It was a bit of a party. <laughs> um, so let's talk about your early career. You grew up in Toronto, is that right? I did. Uh, I was born in Montreal, but I grew up in Toronto. And um, I sort of in North York and had nothing to do with theater <laughs> until I went to uh, UBC um, when I was 20. I took a year off after high school and I took all these general courses in university and I was miserable but I was living with my cousin John Lazarus who's a playwright who encouraged me to you know get happier by doing something in the theater so pushing scenery around or whatever and I started to do that and I suddenly found a little home at the theater at UBC and so I um the next year I majored in the BFA program there um and did not complete it I did two years um and loved loved it so much that I wanted to get out and do it so at the time, I wasn't really interested in design or didn't know I was yet. I, was, I loved hanging lights. I loved the technical part of it. So I did two years at UBC, and then I got um, a position to do an internship at the BAMP Center. And um, I did that in electrics, in te- technical work, with all intention of going back to university. <laughs> and then from there, I got a job in Halifax as the head electrician. And it was there, so I was there for two years working on a two-seam preset board, um, working with a whole bunch of different designers, and I started really watching them work and started to think that I could do that too and that I wanted to do that. And um, 
So I think I asked Tom Kerr at the time, who was the artistic director. Actually, Richard Azunian was the artistic director in the first season. Then Tom Kerr, and um, I asked for a lighting design, and he gave me one, and that was my first lighting design. I was 22, and we did a show called Brass Rubbings, which was a Gordon Pinson All right. play. And sorry, what year was this? I just want to make sure we. 1990. 1990. Okay, so not that long ago. I mean, some people <laughs> long ago. might think that's long ago. It doesn't <laughs> seem that long ago to me. Um, all right, well, that's great. Yeah. Um, now, tell me about the Banff Center. It seems like that is a reoccurring theme. Like, I've sp- spoken to so many people who have had interconnections in their early career, and it really just launched everything. What was it like being there in the it early 90s? It was amazing. I loved it there. I learned a ton about theater craft, you know, and that's what, and also because it was a big space with good equipment. And, and you were there to learn, right. you know, and so you could make mistakes, you could, um, you know, you could be uh, creative in your decisions. There was always support there. Uh, it was great, actually. I loved it. And also being in that environment was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And a year was perfect. You know, like, I, I think of everything in my life as and everything has temporary benefit, you know, like you do something for a while and you learn from it and then you move forward. So... I think I was only going to do this summer and go back to university, but I ended up doing the whole year. Right. <clears throat> and who was there when you were, uh, who, was your, who were the teachers or the instructors? Um, Adam Stewart and um, Chris Popovich. <laughs> they were the electricians. And then Neil Peter Jampolis and Jane Reisman were the designers who we were working with. That's, and, that's incredible. Yeah, they were, yeah they, were very, they were characters. They were very American. Mm-hmm. They were wonderful on many levels. Um, their Americanism was great in terms of their work ethic. You had to work hard for them. There was no um, screwing around. Mm-hmm. We like to swear on these podcasts? Um, all I have to do is click a little button that says explicit, and okay. we're done, right? All right, so I'll just be, I'll be cautious. You, no, you can totally... Uh, Ronnie Burkett swore up and down. Okay, good, because I'm a bit of a swearer. Okay, that's fine. Right. that's fine. So, um, yeah, it was a great, great time there. And at the time, I thought what I wanted to do was be... Um, a theater electrician, mm-hmm. and then that all changed eventually. How do you feel about? Um, I mean, Banff has a bit of a tradition of taking people from or, or uh, bringing in professors or instructors from outside the country. Mm-hmm. Um, was that? Do you think that's because we didn't have the talent here? That we didn't have enough people to do that? Or we always have the talent here. Mm-hmm. I still feel that. I sometimes think, why is an American doing that job? Sometimes I don't think that. Like some, you know, I work in other countries too. So I think there's a whole pool of people all over the world. But um, I think there's places where there's lots of Canadians that um, we aren't looking deep enough for. So, um, yeah, I don't at the time I didn't think anything of it because I was young. But when I look back, I think, why why were those Americans filling those jobs, those teaching jobs? And there could have been many Canadians doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and it did eventually change, actually. Right. I mean, Harry Frayner <gasps> was there right. for years after that. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Okay, so um, off to Halifax, and you did brass rubbings, you said? That yeah, so I, I was the electrician there for two years. I did brass rubbings. Um, then I decided I wanted to be a lighting designer, and so I applied um, to be the intern assistant at both Shaw and Stratford, and then I pissed off to India for six months, and I waited for a response from those places, and they looked at my material. And... Um, <laughs> at the time, there was no internet, no email or anything. So I was in the mountains of India somewhere. My father was playing my manager and had gotten an offer from both Stratford and Shaw. And when I eventually found him through, you know, 
a telephone line somewhere. He said, I took Stratford for you. And I didn't, I wanted Shaw. So I said, I wanted Shaw. And he said, oh, I thought you wanted Stratford. So I had to turn Stratford down when they weren't very happy with me. And I took the Shaw gig. And it was two, it was a two, at the time, assisting at Shaw was two years, two seasons. And then you moved on. So I went there. And um, I, assi- I worked with Rob Thompson, who was the head of design, who taught me so much, so much. And I did that for two seasons. And then uh, I did Stratford after that for two seasons. So in that four, there was that four-year period where I was an assistant. And at the time, I was assisting on those shows, on big shows for Mervish, and then starting to design my own small shows in the city. Mm-hmm. So I had a busy schedule. I kept it full. And all the assisting stuff taught me, I mean, more than anything that I learned in Banff or in school or anything, working with other designers was what taught me everything. Mm-hmm. And even though in, uh, I mean, Shaw tends to be a bit more of a traditional, the spaces are very traditional. They are. So, I mean, the courthouse is a thrust, but um, working in the festival seems to be like nowhere else in Canada. I'm not going to say nowhere else on earth. It's a bit <laughs> presumptuous. You mean because of the rep system uh, Because of the there? rep system, yeah, and because of the structure. Like, how much of that was applicable to you, to the outside world, or was it not about that? Was it about interacting with the designers and no, getting their philosophy? I think... You know, I think in any craft, it's it's like important to learn the basics and the traditional basics. Not always, but I think you need to learn basics in order to break from them. So I learned, I mean, and also it was Rob Thompson who was teaching me, uh, who was my mentor at the time, who I would say is probably one of my best mentors. Um, and he, he, even though he had a traditional sense about his process... He wasn't necessarily that way as a designer. Mm-hmm. You know, he was very creative. So I think I learned a ton there. Uh, and I think it's because of the, the traditional nature of that, that festival that I now can work in any place. You know, like I can take, I, I, I'm, it's like a good education, mm-hmm. especially being a, an assistant there. You, you become very good at your paperwork, good at drafting, good at um, all of the administration parts of, of the job which can suck sometimes. And sometimes if you're a lighting designer that doesn't come out of those places, those things can be harder, mm-hmm. you know, trying to get all that paperwork done and all of that. So having that all uh, behind you is great skill. Um, and also I just, I like the traditional part of lighting design too, you know, like I like all of it. I like knowing uh, that there's all kinds of styles and um, things that you can do that are traditional and then you break from it and then you, you can go back to it. You know, it's good to have all of that in your pocket. Mm-hmm. When I spoke to Beth Cates last weekend, um, she had, she went to NTS and she also, uh, I think she connected with, uh, I was going to say hooked up. That's not the correct term. <laughs> she connected with Andrea Lundy earlier in her career. And yeah. the advice that uh, she got from Andrea was that um, assisting was not where it was at. That she should be working on your own material getting your own voice and that you know that was a protracted way of getting into your own career um i certainly went to become an assistant after i had worked for a few years as a designer Mm -hmm. and it certainly changed the way i worked it was was a very valuable experience but how do you feel about like do you think that people when they come out of their initial training they should just start assisting right away and I think, you know, like anything in life, I think people are different. And I think people take different paths to learn things. So I think, I think it's a very personal choice. I think 
for some people. For me, it was important to see how other people worked, not just administration-wise, but creative-wise. I needed to see, cause, you know, there's because there's all parts of lighting design that um, that you need to bring together. So there's the collaborative part, there's the paperwork part, there's the creative part. Um, and I, it, for me, it was important to see how that all worked. Uh, on a large scale, especially, I wanted to, you know, see how, how people collaborated, because for me, that's the best part. Um, I think it's, I think it depends, you know, like Glenn, mm -hmm. um, he never did any of that. He started working on his own and has a whole other path the way he worked. So I don't think, I, I think that, I think people should make their own choices about that. I, th I certainly think assisting is beneficial if it's what you want to do. It can be frustrating and you have to be patient and it's not an easy job. You have to be quiet. I found it hard because I'm a very dominant person, <laughs> present person. And, you know, a good assistant is seen and not heard. I hate to say it. Like, they're heard by the designer, but in terms of the process, they're quiet. And that's a good assistant. That I found tough. But that was a good skill to learn also, to keep my mouth shut, <laughs> which I'm not always so good at. <laughs> Hopefully not today. Um, and that's Glenn Davidson. Yeah. Who's your husband. That's correct. Yeah, just for people out there who don't know. Um, that's terrific. So when you when you uh, finished at, uh, you were at... Uh, Neptune. Neptune for mm -hmm. two years. Correct, yeah. Uh, and then you came back to Toronto? Or then did I you... went to India for half a oh, year. Oh, right, India, that's right. And then the four years at Shaw and Stratford. That's right. Uh, like and designing, up. and also designing small shows in that four years. So things mm -hmm. at, at the Royal Alex and at the, for Nightwood. I can't remember. Like a lot of small stuff in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And I would do anything. I wanted a, I wanted to do it. I didn't care about the money. I did free stuff. I did stuff for Lofi. I just loved doing it. Mm -hmm. And the more I did it, the more I learned. So it was a great four years because I was learning on really large scale, uh, assisting. I was doing stuff with the Mervishes. Mm -hmm. And then I was learning by doing in the small spaces. And, you know, with things like f 50 lamps, which I, I never get now. 50 lamps. You have to do 20 locations with 50 lamps in the Royal Alex. Mm -hmm. That is a huge learning curve. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you, how do you make that? Right. So those were great. Absolutely. And do you find... Um, when I speak to people about people who are coming out of, or students who are coming out of university now, there seems to be an entitlement or an expectation that they're going to be doing, they're going to be large and in charge right really? away. Um, do you find, I'm not sure if you found that, is that something that you, that, that the students today in the certain cohort are, have expectations or do the people that you're interacting with still have that same mentality of I will do anything it takes until... I you mean people who are it. like younger people? Yeah, who are people, yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I think everyone's different. I don't know. I think, you know, what I've heard is that generally, not just in theater, people come out of university having, being entitled. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what people say. Yeah. Um, I don't know how true it is. I think it's unfortunate if that's what you think. You gotta, you gotta work and you gotta be humble <laughs> and you've gotta pay your dues. Mm -hmm. And you gotta be in the moment and not thinking about what's gonna happen 10 years down the road. Because if you think, about success and you want success, you can't really have it. You have to just work every day and be passionate about what you do and eventually success may or may not come. But if you just come out of school and decide you're gonna be successful because you want it, it may not happen. Yeah. So I think in a way you have to be kind of Buddhist about it all, you know? And um, I think everyone's different. Some people probably come out feeling entitled depending on who taught them to be that way or how they grew up or whatever. And But I do find there, there are other people who like, People who I've worked with as assistants, especially at Shaw, they're great. They they 
they're open, they're humble, they want to learn, they want to, you know, and I think lighting design, and I think in theater design in general, but lighting design does have a, uh, it, it does weed people out. So it is a certain lifestyle that not everybody can handle. So, you know, it's the freelance thing, it's, um, uh, it's competitive, it's hard, it's not, you're not going to make a ton of money on it. So it does eventually weed out people who can't handle it. I think people who've stayed in the game for a long time, their path was the right path for them. But again, I think everybody's path in life is different. Okay, great. So the, we spoke a little bit before about, uh, before this started, about uh, some important works that mm -hmm. you feel were, you know, put you on the map as far as the designer goes. What was the first show that you thought, mm-hmm, this is going to work out? I actually, <clears throat> I think Frida Kay. Oh, right. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. funny you mentioned that because um, that, I mean, I think Peter Hinton has been a huge um, dream in my life. Like, he is a great director to work with and, and a good pal of mine as well now. But that show, um, you know, what I like working about working with him and what I learned on that show was that you can come in with all your ideas uh, preset, and then you might be completely wrong. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, um, so Frida Kay was a bit like that. I had all these ideas that I thought, and he went, no, that's not how I see it, <laughs> and challenged me and pushed the limits of my brain and my creativity. And it was fantastic, beautiful, and the show was well-received, and um, I felt like I had pushed past the limits of what I, you know, this little box in my head of what I think I can achieve. And he challenged me that way, and so I would say that was one of the first ones. And then another one later with him was Duchess Amalfi at Stratford, which was also, you know, again, I came in thinking this is how it's going to be, and he said, no, that's not how I see it. We've worked, you know, we we worked differently on it than I had thought, and it was beautiful in the end. So those kind of shows have been um, really enjoyable. And then last year we did Cabaret, mm -hmm. which was, did you see it? I didn't see it, unfortunately, no, I didn't have a chance. It was another, and it was big scale. Like, I hadn't worked on such a big show with Peter before, and it was such a treat. It was a joy. What about the way he works? Um, is that my phone? That's, it's my phone. <laughs> uh, let me put it away. Damn phones. What about the way that Peter works really gets you engaged? Uh, what's his process like? That well, I mean, partly it's him and his passion. He he comes in with so much homework done, first of all, about, about the period of whatever he's working on. Plus, he'll sit down and talk to the company about the piece for an hour or two. And it's like, it's like going to church, you know? Right. <laughs> like, it's like... He's so engaged and into what he does um, that you, you can't help but going there with him. So that's sort of the base part of his process that I think everybody goes on that ride. Mm -hmm. And he bends you. He, he, it's not always easy. Like It it's, can be very challenging and um, uh, hard, and you go home feeling discouraged, not because of his, him, but because it's difficult what he's asking you to do. Mm -hmm. But once you get on the ride with him, it's fantastic. Um, so it's partly that it's just him. He's so he's such a great theater artist. He's not like a lot of Canadian design uh, directors. Mm -hmm. He he thinks outside the box. Mm -hmm. He's not worried about the kitchen sink in the show, you know. It sounds like he's got a real vision. Like does he does he figure it out over the process, or does he come in going, here are the four three or four essential things I want to accomplish, and mm -hmm. that, and we're going to stick with those. 
Um, I, I haven't, I've done maybe eight, six, seven, eight shows with him. So it's hard to know what his really early part, I mean, certainly you can get into early meetings with him and he has done a ton of reading and a ton of homework. I think he's certainly open. He discovers a lot in the room Mm -hmm. with the actors. Um, but he comes in with a strong idea. Like on Cabaret, it was, he, he really had us all research the art of the period Mm -hmm. you know what was going on in film what was going on in painting what was going on all of that stuff and that was the visual direction of the show Mm -hmm. and that stayed a lot of the props that we we uh, had for the show got cut because they were big ideas around that and we ended up not needing so that is one thing that Peter tends to do is he puts everything out there and then he he pulls it all back when he realizes that you know I mean certainly he would have a lot to say about his process that sure. I can only say from this little window of lighting design, but mm-hmm. I really enjoy working with him. So he's been a great influence on my life. That's terrific. Yeah. And just to put everything in context, so Frida Kahlo or Frida Kay was the late 90s. It was 95. Right? 95. Yeah, it was oh, my first Dora Award. I remember that. Wow, that was a while ago too. Yeah, and that was 95. Okay. So I was really young, and so were you. <laughs> I was very young. I so was, was just Allegra. Had, yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is funny because I had come to that process thinking, I had a different perception of everybody involved. I mean, maybe it was because Peter was involved and he was the senior uh, member of the company. I don't want to say he was a senior at that point, but he was certainly the... Yeah, he's just a couple years older than me. Oh, really? So yeah. everyone was very young at that point. Yeah. God, I thought you guys were like, not ancient, but everyone had a sort of swagger. You know what I mean? Like, it was uh, arrogance. Young guess, arrogance. Yeah, young, maybe that's what it was, young arrogance. I was much more arrogant when I was younger than I am now, mm-hmm. I think. I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's something we all learn, I think. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so Frida K, that's great, and uh, and those other shows. Um, when did you come back? When did you return to the Shaw as a designer? So I was there um, 92, 93 assisting, and then I was invited back <clears throat> in 97 to do something at the George, and that was great. I thought finally I was you know able to take all my training and going back to where... Mm-hmm. And then there was, so there were years there where I did <clears throat> Stratford and Shaw. I sort of went back, bounced back and forth as a guest. And I loved that. I had trained at those places. And that is the benefit of training there, mm-hmm. is that you know those systems. They're, they're more likely to hire you. Mm-hmm. Not always, because they hire lots of people there. But if they know you and you know the system, it's, you've got a better in. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's the benefit of assisting there. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's terrific. The... Um I think it was the mystery. You did the mystery. That was the year I came. I first. Oh God, that's right. Bonnie Beecher. Our careers are <laughs> had a lot of joining points. Yes, that's it. right. I did the mystery with Joe Ziegler. Mm-hmm. I did a magic show with David Ben. Yeah, the, the Conjurer. <clears throat> yeah, that's yeah. right. So yeah, uh, I was there, and then I didn't come back to Shaw for a while. I was at Stratford. I did some other stuff, and then I think in two thousand and nine, I came back again, mm-hmm. and I've been there nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So all these years, nine, from two thousand and nine on. Great. Before we get to your Shaw and your current mm-hmm. Soul Pepper show, mm-hmm. talk about your process. Let's talk about uh, Europe. Yeah. Now, how did you? This <clears throat> seems to be between Europe and the U. I mean, working outside of Canada seems yeah. to be the holy grail <clears throat> for designers and like Canadian designers. Really? Right? I mean, everyone. Um, we have a robust theater community in Canada, mm-hmm. but it's rather small. When it you is. start to work across yeah. the country, you see the same people over again. But um, the com- the larger commercial hits and the larger you know the larger funding and sort of grander scale of the European theater tends to be this jewel in the distance mm-hmm. that not many people yeah. sort of achieve. So how did you find your way there? Well, uh, first of all, I feel incredibly lucky that it all fell in my lap that way. And <clears throat> um, Dominique Dumay, who was a um, ballet dancer at the National Ballet. 
She was, she's a couple years younger than me, and we met, I was the um, lighting director at the FIDA Festival, mm -hmm. Buddies in Bad Times, and she was starting her choreographic career. And that's the Festival of Independent Dance, I that's think. That's right, right? Yeah. yeah. So she came in, she was starting her choreographic career, she came in, she's <laughs> this tall, beautiful ballerina, really open and sweet, and, and came in to ask me questions about, you know, what the rig was like, and I thought she was stupid. I just thought, I just instantly judged her, because she was so you know, tall and pretty and kind of, I thought she was dumb or something. Well, little did I know. So she came in and we did this piece together in two, the two hour tech period. And it was amazing. She knew exactly what she wanted. She, she had a great piece and we really connected. And, um, and that was when I first learned not to, you know, judge people right away. <laughs> and um, then her career started to grow. And so she got um, some pieces at the National Ballet of Canada and she brought me along on that ride. And so so th that was really where my, I mean, I had worked with DeRosier too, but so I had a dance thing going on, but this was a larger thing happening. So we started working together quite a bit. We did two pieces in the National Ballet and some stuff out of town and started to become quite good friends as well. And then she and her boyfriend, Kevin O'Day, got um, a job at the Mannheim National Ballet Theater in Mannheim, Germany. And that was 15 years ago, and they started bringing me in for pieces there. And so I started doing two, one to three pieces there a year. So already it was a lot. And um, really for the first five years, it was just that theater. And then they brought in another director named, uh, choreographer named Bridget Breiner, who was from the Stuttgart Ballet. She brought me to Stuttgart, where I worked with other choreographers. And that work started to spread. And so now there's uh, five choreographers in Europe that, that I work with. And so now it's mostly been Mannheim, but also I've done six, almost seven pieces for the Stuttgart Ballet, the Dortmund Ballet, the Ballet in Riviere in um, Gelsenkirchen, Germany, which I was there last year. And next year I have a new Nutcracker at the Royal Flanders Ballet in Antwerp, wow. doing two new pieces in France next year, and then three in Germany, one in Stuttgart, two in Mannheim. What was your original, what was the reception Sorry, let me start again. Mm -hmm. What was, when you arrived in, in Germany, in Mannheim for the first time, what was your reception by the local crew? Like, had, did, was there any resentment? Yeah, they hadn't, or? no, no resentment, but no. they hadn't worked with foreigners much. A lot of the small German houses don't really use lighting designers. They have what is called the Beleuchtungmeister, which is the head of lighting, who's sort of like the electrician slash lighting designer. So what happens is um, a director and a designer will come in and they use the Beleuchtungmeister as a facilitator, so they'll say, I need, you know, blue light over there. And it's, but it's not that they've necessarily gone to rehearsal or really engaged in the creative process. Right. So, and, and that being said, on a lot of the bigger cities, they do use lighting designers. So it's just, in this house, they hadn't. So at first, it took a little time um, for me to figure out how they work and how the system works and how to use that person to my benefit. And um, it took a few years, actually. Uh, for them to be open to me. They were always kind and nice, but then I became like such a regular. I've done, I've done over 25 premieres there now. So they know me really well and we have a great way of working and I know how to use the system now and I know how to um, take advantage of the rig <clears throat> because it's a very different way of designing than here. It seems to be, um, the, the more we discuss, or I discuss this with people, it seems like um, Gene Rosenthal and the American uh, tradition of having a lighting designer seems to be very 
a North American phenomenon. I think so. Um, the UK, I think, does the same thing, where yeah. the director is responsible for making those lighting choices, working with the... <coughs> well, uh, not on the big shows. There's a lot of um, British lighting designers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, great. I'm always wrong. Sorry. <laughs> my my, my uh, technique when I do interviews is I say something that's completely wrong and the other person goes, oh, no, but, and then they go on. Well, that's okay. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I fine think lighting that. design in general in the world has grown. I think um, the German system has always worked well and for some of these smaller government houses, right? right. And so they haven't always, and a lot of the in-house Bolleusteinmeisters, they're good at it. Mm -hmm. The thing that I notice is different in the North American approach, Canadian and American, is the more academic approach. So we go to school for it, not all of us, we go to school for it, we learn about it, we learn about theatre history, we, we, create, we know how to create a lighting design plot. Europe's different. Um, it's, there's a, a more sort of rock and roll approach to it. The, the houses are already, not always, certainly the ones I've worked in, they have lights in them already. There's like 300, 400, 500 lights set up, but in no particular system. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you can refocus what you want. More and more of them are using moving lights now. Um, it's a bigger, bolder approach. It's everything's big, broad strokes. It's big gear, like big HMIs. Um, that, again, is starting to change because they're going more in the moving light direction, which we all use now. But just generally as a design, um, you know, an aesthetic, Germans tend to go bigger, bolder, not as much fine work, what, for what I've experienced. You know, I haven't been all over Europe working or seeing stuff, but... Do you know how those original choices were made about where gear goes in the house? Is it sort of the... I don't know. I know that... I don't know for sure, but I know, that, like, what I have noticed in every German house I've worked in is there are certain locations where there's lights in every house. So they have um, inside the portal bridge, inside the... the um, the proscenium, what they call it, the portal, mm -hmm. there's like rows and rows of gear, which we don't have. And there's also follow spots in there. So they all have that. So I think there was some original um, <clears throat> design done. I don't know how, what the history of lighting design there is. Mm -hmm. So they all have gear inside the portal bridge. And they all have gear. There's galleries along the sides, all gear there. They don't use ladders, mm -hmm. so it's not like if you wanted to put to hang like 20 source fours that are focused in squares, you couldn't. You would have to use moving lights or hang them on the gallery. That's been my experience. I'm sure some houses are different. Um, so it's a little different that way. So so that was hard for me at first. It was like, there's no tip system. There's no, you know, there's always booms. Mm -hmm. So how do I get around that? I learned to actually design dance without all the academic approach to it. Sort of a bit more um, big, bold, lots of backlight. Which I love. Yeah, well, that's interesting. And what have you brought those techniques back to your work in Canada? I mean, the way you work must have changed. It did, and it has. I mean, I still have the way I work um, on, you know, with lo lots of fine ideas, like small uh, approaches to things and detailed. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think I think it has. I think there's always a director who wants to break out of what is predictable, and so I always draw on that. Like, how can I take one big backlight and light a whole scene, you know? And sometimes it, it can work really well, and that's often what I'll do in Europe, is is how to define people in the space um, without lighting everything else. <laughs> and it's funny, because in Europe, I, I use a lot of follow spots, and you know, uh, people always go, follow spots? I was like, but I use them really soft, and I use them, um, and I always convince the choreographer that it's a Trust me, if you want mystery in the space, you don't want me lighting the whole space. So how to 
pick people out. So I'll often in big dance pieces, I'll use four follow spots, which I never get to do here. Mm -hmm. Which, but, but I love that because then I can really create an environment and just light people floating in that environment, which is always what you want. Yeah. This is a, I think that people have a, they get hives around follow spots because it's really meant for musicals. And I think you can use them in all kinds of ways if you're creative. Um, it seems to me that they, the gear that we have here, like that was sort of most of the in-house gear is that hard front um, follow spot gear too. Not a lot of people actually have the beam projector or the the smaller yeah. stuff that's clo or the positions close to the, the stage positions, where you can put yeah. it too, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, it does seem. I mean, the 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 way you describe the 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 portal system seems to be um, reminiscent of all that lighting history from before the, the World War II. Because a lot of stuff of here's your standard setup of a Broadway stage. You have yeah. all this stuff in the portal. Yeah. Like it, and and fall spots. People are like manning those that equipment. So it seems like a much older model mm -hmm. that hasn't been. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Um, now, having worked abroad, mm -hmm. is there a way that you can sort of encapsulate? maybe a generalized Canadian approach? Like you said, academic. Um, does that mean that it's systems-based and very... Yeah, I think um, what I mean by academic, it's not a judgment at all because I work in that system too. It's mm -hmm. more about creating a rig that you can then work out of. So, so academic meaning we create systems, yeah. So we have a side light system and a back light system and a front light system and... And as much, so when I make a plot, for example, here, not in Europe, but if I make a plot, I still work that way. I'll go, I'll put all the general ideas in. So front light, back light, diagonal back light, side light. So I think we, I think not always, we, we don't always do that here. It depends on your gear. You know, like when I was doing 50 lamps in the poor Alex, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. you, you, you have to figure out how to um, be creative with 50 lamps. You can't, you don't have enough lights for systems. But I would say here in North America, yeah, we have a system-based approach. That's certainly how I, I was trained. Um, and I think it's a good approach. I think it's it's just your toolbox, really. It's creating a toolbox that then you can, the creative part comes is a separate thing, I think. But uh, yeah, so I think the academic approach, when I say that, is is how to create your toolbox, how to create your lighting plot, how to, you know. Um, but the creative stuff is, from your mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It also seems like one uh, that the the gear begets the design uh, approach and vice versa. So I was going to ask if maybe we're uh, because of a, we're, many theaters may be resource poor mm -hmm. that it sort of demands a certain way of working. But I imagine the way of working also demands what gear you have to put in the house. So if you're not expected to have 300 lamps in fixed positions. No one's going to design the theater that way. And so you're going to have 150 lamps that you have to hang yeah. in a systems way that are specific for the show. I think, one of the, I think one of the skills of being a good lighting designer is being able to, to take your vision with any lighting plot and figure out how to adapt it. I think um, I've gotten really good at that, at that kind of problem solving. I used to be, like I'd have a choreographer come to me years ago and say, I've put walls in, there's no side light, and I'd have a freak out, right? <laughs> How am I supposed to like, dance without side light? <laughs> um, but I think being in Europe has partly, and also just age and experience has taught me that, uh, okay, well, I don't have side light. How, how can I approach this? How can I take this vision that's in my head 
and put it on the stage with these lamps that I have or this gear that I have or what, how, you know, the problem solving part of it, which has become a real joyful part of the job for me. Mm-hmm. I've gotten really good at it, you know, and, and still learning from it. So I think that's part of it is you just have to figure out, I mean, it, means, it doesn't mean you can't push for more gear if you, if you need something. There's not always money for it, but you need to know what you want. Can you afford it? If you can't afford it, how can you work with what you have? And I think that's part of the gig. Um, just to, I just want to talk about dance for a second too because you've done so much of it. Um, there was a recent podcast, and I think it may have been Ken Billington. There's a podcast out of, the, out of New York run by a guy named uh, Corey Paddock. Mm-hmm. has a podcast called In One where he's doing these kind of interviews with Broadway designers. And somebody was talking about uh, Theron Musser, uh, her work with, uh, oh, now I've totally blanked on the choreographer from the 1970s. Twyla Tharp? It may have been Twyla Tharp. Yeah, maybe. Um, and because of the tradition of ballet, uh, I think, with the sort of high tips and the side light, um, the idea of lighting a dance show with front light was anathema to people, right? And I think that the new choreographers in the 1970s, from what I understand, sort of went, no, it's just like it's, we're telling a story just like any others. We have to see people's dancers are expressive. They're not just expressing with their bodies, they're right. expressing with their faces. So, um, what, kind of, what kind of baggage do we have? For front light? For, like, for... like, how do you, is that something you common to get asked, or is that. Depends on the dance. I mean, I do mm-hmm. a lot of contemporary dance. So, no, we don't. I mean, you need to see people's expressions, but more you need to see their expressions in their bodies. Uh, in contemporary work. I've done traditional ballet as as well, but I don't enjoy it as much. Um, And in traditional ballet, you need to see their faces. You need to see those smiley faces. Um, So it depends on the piece. Like, I'm open, you know. If I'm doing a traditional ballet, Swan Lake, which I did a couple years ago for Ballet Jorgen, yeah, I I know what I need to do. It's not like I want to light that like some weird backlit contemporary piece, you know. Like, I know that it needs to look warm and colorful and 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 traditional and so i know how to do that and i enjoy doing that um so i don't mind lighting people's faces but in contemporary work i tend to not use much front light Mm -hmm. um again i use follow spots if i can so that pulls people out um i'll use enough front light to see their faces but the key lighting for most contemporary dance that i do is backlight and side light Mm -hmm. um and i i really like defining bodies and space with like a single backlight so often in a dance show I'll um, if I don't have ba- a backlight system I'll put one in so when I go into the fleck which doesn't have backlight they have those stupid par strips mm-hmm. I'll put in a whole bunch of par cans so that I can then define the space as as the people move around and then can really hone in on somebody so I tend to use that more mm-hmm. but yeah f- I always hang front light for contemporary pieces too mm-hmm. Great. Well, let's turn to um, the Shaw Festival mm-hmm. and your current the current production of Sweet Charity yes. that's opening in a week. It's opening May 16th, and I can't go to my opening because I'm going to be here working. Oh, no. But I had such a blast working on it. It was so fun. Yeah. Who who directed it? Morris Panich. Morris Panich. And Ken McDonald did the set, and Parker Essay is a choreographer from the States who did all this fantastic, big American tap dancing <laughs> kick line, <laughs> stuff like that. Right. And it was really, and uh, Cam Davis did the productions, mm-hmm. and Charlotte Dean did the costumes. And it was like, sometimes you work on a show where the creative team is completely in sync with each other, and it was one of those shows. We, 
We had amazing, there was no tension. It was always great work together. It was uh, really creative. It was, it went really well. It was really fun. And the piece is great. I mean, it's a weird musical. It's strange. But so give us a synopsis for people who don't so know about the musical. It's, it was written in the 60s. And um, it's about this girl, this sweet girl who's a dance hall hostess who can't find love. And you just, you're rooting for her the whole time. And, you know, she's not perfect. And she's always picking up bad men, she, and she works with all these other girls who are dance hall hostesses, and um, and she just wants lo- she wants to be loved. That's it. And she, you know, you go through a whole journey with her, falling in love, falling out of love, finally falling in love, and then the, you know, you have to see it to know the ending. <laughs> Not going to give it away, but um, it's on, on the surface, it's quite fluffy and flaky, but actually it isn't. You know, like there's some grit to it, which is great. Partly because it's written in the '60s and. You know, she's trying to make a living, you know, in the hard way. So it's not too fluffy. The music is great. A lot of the um, numbers, you know, like um, um, Big Spender mm-hmm. and um, If They Could See Me Now. Um, so those are sort of classic songs. And it is one song after another. I mean, and a big dance number. It's a big cast, uh, big music. Um, yeah, it was really fun. It's really great. oh and how did you find your way in? Morris Panage tends to be a big ideas director, right? Did he have a, a way of saying, we're going to do this, this is the concept we're starting with? And Yeah, I, we had early meetings. Um, him and Cam Davis, who did the projections, and uh, Ken and I would be sat down. Just Yeah, so Morris brought a, a big approach to it right away, which is... But, but Morris is like, even though he's big ideas guy, he's a great collaborator. He's very... He doesn't have ego around, you know, you giving your part of the input like that's what I really like about working with him and he's fun like he's funny and um so he had some ideas and Ken him and Ken are you know they're married and so they they think very similar mm-hmm. so they work so they they brought something to it but they kept us in the loop the whole time and so we were very involved Cam and I in because uh, projection was such a big part of it as well and um in how the structure of it was going to work and so we were very involved in in that part of it which I really liked mm-hmm. So tell me about the sort of overall design. I know this is audio, and so you can't just say, "Here's a picture." Yeah. Um, what is the concept that you like? How did so? There's like a there's like a big catwalk piece that um, could be anything. You know, it looks like a, like a catwalk, but it, it with certain other pieces attached to it. It looks like you know a New York City skyline. It moves back and forth. They can go under it. They can go over it. That's sort of the main piece of scenery, and it moves up and down the stage. Um, and then there's these billboards that fly in that are sort of also look the same kind of skeletal structure. Then behind that is an RP screen, which is always with projection on it. And so the projection tends to be location, uh, black and white posterized pictures of New York City that um, Cam sort of has treated. And then there's a mid-stage screen as well. So sometimes it's mid-stage RP, sometimes rear stage, sometimes there's a front scrim, and it's all with projection. I think we have six projectors in the show, wow. lots of projection. Um, most of the images are black and white um, until the musical numbers come in. And the RP also works as a psych, so I have lots of color on it. And that's really it. It, 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 it doesn't sound like a lot, but with the combination of projection and scenery and color and the costumes, it looks like a big show, you know? I mean, the simplicity of it is what's really nice about it, but it doesn't feel simple when you watch it. And I have over 400 lighting cues in it yes. so it's busy it's a busy show yeah um now how as a lighting designer how did you support the projections like it sounds 
in that space. This is in the festival yeah. theater, which That's is a right. large Pross house. Uh, and the rig is huge at Shaw. It's 800 or whatever lights it mm, is. I don't or, think it's that big, but it's big, yeah. It's big. How do, you, um, how do you work with that kind of projections in the rep plot? Like, a, yeah. imagine projectors back in the day. <laughs> uh, slides. You know, you couldn't, like... Don't, don't turn up too much because you're going to wash yeah, out the, the right. RP, right? How do you deal with that? Well, first problem? of all, I've been using, I mean, I've most, I would say more than 60% of the shows that I do in a year have now video in them. Mm-hmm. So it's become a thing that I have to deal with. I don't do the projections. I always insist there's a, it's not my skill. Yeah. But it is kind of like lighting. So I work very closely. And Cam and I have done three shows together this year. So... I'm involved with the video projector, a video designer in terms of what the content might be, as well as the set designer, where the where it's coming from. Um, our rear our rear projection is better than front, and the balance. So when we do levels, um, if the video is too bright, you know, I'll say, "Can you take that lower?" And so I work really in in conjunction with the video uh, designer, and I enjoy it. Uh, I, I've learned more and more over the last. I would say five years, how to light around video. Mm-hmm. You have to give it its presence without it being too present. Mm-hmm. So there's a balance you have to do. What, what, what's a treat about video is now, if I have a video video on the show and the director says, I need this effect, I just, I say, I don't have to do that. Video can do that, right? <laughs> so it does, there's lots more options for effects. Mm-hmm. And I, at first I was a little resistant because we came out of that slide period. Yeah. And it's like, let's put slides in. I thought, <laughs> But now video is, you know, there's there's much more of it and it's it works better in the stage. I don't know. I think we always need it, mm-hmm. but I'm not afraid of it anymore. And I think it can really add to the show yeah. as long as it's not gratuitous or done for no reason. Yeah. Just getting to a technical. Oh, sorry. Just getting to a technical question. How do you deal with front light and how do you light people differently when there's RP and a bunch of other stuff going um, on? You just have to make sure your front light is not hitting the screen for one thing. Or bouncing too much on the screen. So it depends on what the floor surface is. If you have a shiny floor and a video, you're going to have bigger trouble. Um, Yeah, it's all balance. You have to always think of it as balance. Um, So front light, yes. Can't hit the screen. Use more side light. Um, Every situation is different, of course. In Sweet Charity, we had two follow spots, so we have follow spots going all the time for the principals. Right, and as long as you don't have a shiny floor, you don't have that little follow spot splash that's right following you around right that's right and i've had that before in dance shows where i've had shiny floors and video and you know the follow spot will hit the floor bounce up onto the back and sometimes it's a happy surprise it looks really cool (laughs) in this show in the debic which we'll get to in a minute we have a shiny floor so we do we utilize the bounce sometimes for effect yeah that's terrific Mm -hmm. so tell me about working down um through the process at Shaw. Now, it's a collaborative experience when you're doing the rep plot. Yes. And the rep plot there is very comprehensive. It is. Um, which I understand is different than Stratford. Uh, Stratford's more bare bones and you sort of put more um, of your own gear. Stratford is also comprehensive. The, the difference there is that there's sort of, you come into the, the, the plots already exist at Stratford. I mean, you have say in it, but there's it's still like a plot that exists and you can bend it a little bit. At the at, Shaw, it's actually similar at Shaw. We still work in a base, but you can come in. Uh, you come in like I work. I come in for the last two weeks of February and work with Kevin, and we go through. We sort of go. Do we need this concept? And how is this concept going to work for me? And I sort of need to add this. So we work a little more together on it. It's not that different, but somewhat different. Um, it's a big plot, uh, and 
um, like last year when I was doing cabaret, there's a lot of front light in the plot. So I said to Kevin, like, can we pull one of those concepts out so there's more gear? Because you want to make sure you have enough gear for your own show. Because what you do is you work on the rep together and then you split the remaining inventory. Um, and there's moving lights, luckily, and IQ mirrors. This year we got um, LED Source 4s, which are... Kevin and I spoke about that. Beautiful. Yeah, the, the Series 2 is, yeah, the is lustre. bang on. Oh, my God, they're just fantastic. Mm-hmm. I, I want to always use them. The <laughs> color was amazing. So... Yeah, I mean, it, I and I love working with Kevin. We've known each other for such a long time since that I started assisting back at Shaw, and um, yeah, and we work well together. And we, you know, there's never tension about who needs more gear. I mean, the musical, I always tend to um, I'd be porky about it and go, "I need a bit more gear. Is that okay with you?" Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And how? Um how about working in the space? So they, there's lots of time for levels and that kind of discovery down there. There's it? never enough time for levels anywhere. But no. yes, lots. There's enough. Um, well, there's enough. You, you still have to be... There's not a lot of time for exploration. A little bit of time. But you, I still tend to want to do a paper tech before I go in. I don't want to sit and waste time in there going, do we put a queue here? I mean, you do that anyways. But at least you want to get the base ideas in. So that all you need to focus on is the looks. Um, you still have to move quickly and efficiently, but you, I, have, I think I had 16 or 20 hours to set levels. Mm-hmm. But in this time, remember, we had video has to be part of that, mm-hmm. plus moving scenery and all of that stuff. So I think Shaw is very luxurious that way, and even though you end up running out of time and being pressed for time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like the more, over the years, uh, there's more gear that takes more time to queue, like all the moving lights That's right. and the IQs, yes. and tracking and everything else. You need time to sort of... And you need to you need to have your head in that space. You need to be organized. Um, you need to have a good assistant, which I always have there, uh, and I really use the assistants there to take care of all that stuff. Um, so yeah, there's the the more technology there is, the longer things take. Although the more moving gear you have, the less focus time you need. So it good. does yeah, pan out point. somewhere. Now, how do you? Uh, and again, I think that I have as a. In the terms of this podcast, I think I've got an advantage in that I left the biz before that became really part of theater. Moving lights? Moving lights. Right. Right. We used them in larger stuff, but, I mean, uh, or you'd have a special. Yeah. But not whole systems of moving lights, mm-hmm. like doing washes and everything else. And obviously, that's a big Broadway and a rock and roll thing, but, you know, mid-sized theater and large theater in Canada really didn't use them that much. Unless it was a big musical, and those mm-hmm. are rare. So, how do you approach a moving lights? Like, do you set up palettes uh, yourself, or do you rely on the uh, operator to do palettes for you, or focus palettes? And how um, do you approach so, that? So often you have, like at Shaw, for example, you have VL time. I never use it. I never do my. I never pre-do my VLs because I think of I think of VLs as I design them. The way I de- at the same time as I'm designing everything else, I use them that way. Mm-hmm. So I will um, set a cue. I go. I need this special here, and I'll focus that VL there. Mm-hmm. And you make a palette for it. So you need the operator to know what they're doing. Yeah. And I often label. We'll label them like here on the debate where because I don't have an assistant on this show. Normally, I would say this light palette is this concept. So I'm having the board operator label it in the board. Should we ever remount it? So at least I know what they're doing. Um, so I just use them on the fly. Um, I always work in move while dark, so I don't have to think about tracking them. Although sometimes I do. Like when I work, uh, I do the Apartelier shows every year. 
And it's a grand dame there. And I hate that board. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, it's got its very specific purpose yes, in theater. So it's not what it was designed for. I tend for, to, right? um, to work in, I don't work in automove while dark there. And I, so I have to put everything in. So I think with moving lights, you always need to have your brain one step ahead. You need to know what they're doing and um, and really know how to use them that way. And I tend to also love IQ mirrors. Like they're the most simple moving light, really just a Canadian thing. Nobody else really uses them. Although I, I've been working in the Versailles Opera House and I needed, I wanted to have them and so I got them to buy them. So now they exist in the Versailles Opera House, which is good. Um, so yeah, I love moving lights. Like it took me a while to really learn how to use them properly and how to track them. And But now I'm, I'm good at all that stuff and yeah. and still learning you know like I find if I have a more and more moving lights I have to really think differently like I have to really think about how I'm using them it just reminded me that I really want to talk about opera atelier especially since, since you're moving using moving lights in what is supposed to be a traditionally lit baroque yes. opera right yes. I, want to, I want to talk about that in a second if that's okay. yeah I'd love to um so anything about sweet charity that we want to cover that we haven't talked about already like was there um, any particular problems you had to solve that you no, uh, I'm just trying to think. Uh, no, it was it was great. Just just amount of just f coming up with um, some conceptual ideas. Like it was made in the '60s. Like, do we want it? Do we need it to look like that? Mm -hmm. You know, and and basically, uh, Morris said, you know, no, it doesn't. It needs to just be colorful and vibrant, and um, and that's where we went. You know, and I don't always. I'm not always someone who loves a lot of color, but I knew I had to use it in that. I use pink and you know lots of blues and yellows and things so it was fun just for people who are listening at home when she said the word pink I had this kind of grimace <laughs> in your face it's very pink who uses pink yeah pink 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 <laughs> um so no I it was a joy actually and everyone should go see it Absolutely. I'm going to try this year. I'm, I'm so sorry I missed Cabaret last year because oh, apparently it was it amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. It was so amazing. It's incredible. Um, all right. So let's move on to, sorry, pronounce the name again. Dybbuk? Dybbuk. Dybbuk. The Dybbuk. The, the, uh, it looks much different um, when you, it's a very odd word. Uh, can you just give us a synopsis? What's the play about? And so Dybbuk is an old Yiddish play. It was written at the turn of the century, I think. And it's been, it's the most produced Yiddish play, most popular Yiddish play. And it's a ghost story. You know, I love to call it the Jewish walking dead, but you know, it's not really zombies. But um, it's basically a love story. Um, it takes place in an old Jewish detal. And this place is, uh, everyone believes in ghosts and spirits. It's, it's like they're always spitting and you know, making sure that they don't curse a spirit. So they're very um, superstitious people. And um, there's a, a bride who's about to get married, but she, um, she gets possessed by her love. Mm -hmm. And basically, so it's about an exorcism. Mm. So it's about love and family and all of that, but it's also a ghost story, right. which is really great. It's got those two things going on. Um, so uh, it's been really great working with Albert on it. He's super creative with his ideas. There's 23 people in the cast. We're doing a lot of the work on stage. We didn't really have traditional level time. We're sort of putting all the pieces together. Um, what's been great about working with Albert the last few years, like I did Angel in, in, in America with him as well, is he's um, really open to not the traditional approach visually now. Um, so you can sort of really go heavy side light, heavy backlight, crazy sort of angles. Nothing has to be believable. 
Um, and so we're really going in that this direction. We've got lots of crazy angles, lots of haze. It's um, it's creepy and spooky and beautiful. Mm-hmm. We're just using the plain brick wall. And that's Albert Schultz, yeah. who's also the AD here, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. At Saltpepper. Mm-hmm. Um, great. So how did you approach this? Uh, let's just compare and contrast with, uh, with working in a large uh, collaborative way at Shaw, mm-hmm. with working independently in a, in a, you know, as, your, as the sole LD. Um, how do you collect your mm-hmm. ideas at the beginning and uh, get those down on paper? For this show? For Dybbuk? Uh, for sure. Let's yeah. talk about um, Well, I go to rehearsal a lot. Um, I'll start early meetings uh, with the designer and the director to, to try to get a sense of what it is. Uh, so I started with Lorenzo, and I already could see, you know, he basically it's an empty stage with a shiny black 18 by 18 floor. So I could already tell by that that it was a stylized, it's going to be a stylized-looking piece. There's not, you know, there's not anything to anchor the, the stage in any reality, other than some furniture which comes on and off. But otherwise... It's a it's a play box. Ellen Brody, <laughs> just before you go on, Ellen Brody used to say that um, he would do ninety percent of the design when he saw the set design. Like you have all the components in place, and the last little bit was in rehearsal. Do you yeah. find the same thing? Or no, is, I no. don't. I I wouldn't say ninety percent. I mean, I'll look at the set design, and I'll maybe maybe fifty percent. Like I'll I'll say, okay, this is the style. But it's really not until I get into rehearsal that I see what's happening. Because you can have a really cr- crazy looking set and the and the direction can be very traditional, and so you have to sort of balance that. Um, so I spend time in rehearsal gathering ideas. I have a lot of it in my head at first. Um, and I tend to do my plots and all that paperwork very late because I, as soon as I put it down on paper, then I'm, like, committed to the idea. So I like to – I think about it a lot. I'll wake up thinking about it. Um, and then, uh, then, yeah, rehearsal comes. Then by the time I have the plot done – I have a sense of what I'm doing. Sometimes I'm wrong, and that's what I loved about when I was saying about Peter Hinton. Is like I'll go into levels thinking this is it, and then he'll go, nope. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that's always challenging, but yeah. So it just it starts to stew, like in your head. You start to it's like a you know, you think about it more and more and more and more, and finally when you get on stage, you take all those tools that you've hung, and you start to put them together the way you've thought about them, or you find happy surprises, different different things that work. That's what's been nice about the Dybbuk, is we're doing a lot of the lighting during rehearsal on stage. Um, so we're discovering, you know, we're doing some pre-lighting, but most of it is with actors on stage. Wow. Yeah. And is that something they do here often? Albert has started to do it more. No, there's, all, there's traditional lighting time here, but he tends to like that. I find more and more, because I did Death of a Salesman a few years ago, and... We did level time there, but we started to work with actors on stage. And also, I know how, he's very, um, he's got a really good eye. He's a good lighting designer. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he, he doesn't necessarily know how to put it together on the lighting board, but he's very dominant in, in how the look, you know, we work to, very closely together on it. So it's not just me going, what about this? He'll, he'll sometimes say, how about bring up those side lights and put that front light in and blah, blah, blah. And so I'll do that. And then I'll say, well, how about we do this instead? So we work really well together. We have a very similar vocabulary. And I think the more he directs, the more he's, he gets it. And the more I work with him, the more I get him. So it's been really great. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'd want to do that with every director, but it's been working great with him. Yeah, certainly building the 
individual relationship is really important. It is. It's the yeah. best part of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. It Why is. else would we do theater, right? Yeah, I mean, for me, the collaboration is the most fun. Yeah, otherwise we'd be working in a studio with paint. You know, and it seems like uh, that seems to be the way that the that everything is moving these days. Where traditional lighting time, where you're by yourself with the director, maybe the set designer, um, less and less is less and less. In the states, a lot of places they don't even do it. Mm -hmm. Like in their, I mean, you know, big shows they do there, but they tend to just bang it on stage. There was a in 2007, I went to England to work on the Penelopead, mm -hmm. and we didn't have any level time. They don't do it there. They just basically start tech sort of like we did on the Dybbuk here. They start tech with everything, and you just work through. And in some ways, it's more beneficial. It's more pressure. You have people are waiting for you. You have to be organized, and you have to be able to roll with it. Mm -hmm. um, if you take a long time working, it's not a good thing to do. But I can work quickly now. Um, if you're a new designer, <coughs> is, it sounds like that would be a I mean, as a, as a lighting designer, you're, there's, you're under a lot of pressure anyway. Yeah, because lots. you've got a week or a few days to get your look together. You're the last and, thing in. And if you screw it mm. up, you got to... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> You're in trouble. You have to have a, you know, yeah. like, like, a, like a backup plan, right? Um, it sounds like, though, as a new designer, that would be even more frightening. Um, it would be. Do you think that if you're a younger designer or if you're a production manager or a scheduler trying mm -hmm. to work this out that a newer designer would need more time by themselves with I the director? I think so. Yeah. Man, not just a newer designer, but it depends on how you work. could be an experienced designer who doesn't work well under pressure, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have said I, 10 years ago I would have liked to work this way. But now I can, and I can work fast. And part of what's taught me to work fast is um, operas and ballets in a union house where you only have four days, and you have to, like Opera Atelier, which we'll talk about, but we have four days to get those in, and you have to be super organized, and you have to work quickly, and you have to have your thoughts rolling fast. Um, so for me, I can work that way, and I actually like working that way. I, it's, I find as I get older, I was saying this to someone recently, that after an intense day of, you know, cue to cue or tech work through, my brain feels like it's had a workout mm -hmm. in a good way. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like it's exercised, and, it, and the focus that it takes, it's, it's, I love it. Like, that's part of what I love about my job right now in my life is that it's just so much focus and so much creativity and and that's when i'm in it that's all i think about it's my zen practice <laughs> yes exactly no that's certainly enjoyable uh now let's let's move on to upper tell you was there anything else about dipic that the, the, the dipic that we want to talk um, about i mean how about tricks or tips like? um well working with a shiny floor yeah which i've done before um which you it has its own life and um you want to like you you need to light it but you don't want to light it too much what you want to do is light people on it so we have a lot of side light um I don't know what else to say about it except it's a great piece. It's really interesting and beautiful, and Albert and the cast have done great work on it. So come and see it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. How how are you treating the brick wall? Are you lighting it traditionally um, with psych stuff I'm or side throwing light? side light at it. So I didn't want to use. I thought about psych light, so I didn't really have the positions for it. And we did that in Angels, and it worked. But I think for this piece, it needed to be a little more weird looking. So sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. And so I'm just sort of throwing light uh, gobo or little texture at it, and that works. Great. All right, so Opera Atelier. Now, the, the, the Opera Atelier, again, I haven't worked there, but my understanding is it is produced as traditional. It's supposed to look as traditional um, Baroque theater would look, right? Well, There's a certain commitment it's changed. To that. So, yes, I think that's the intention of how it started. 
And yes, in the big picture, that is still true. It's still traditional Baroque movement mm -hmm. and poses and music. I mean, it's they work with Tafel Music, who's a Baroque company. And the sets are usually wing and border, kind of cut they're drop all, they're, stuff. They're direct, um, designed by Gerard Gotchi, yeah. who's brilliant painter and artist. And he, so it is, yes, it's all flying um, painted drops, which are beautiful. Um, and he used to, when he started lighting the pieces, he's Kevin Fraser for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I think for a long time at the beginning, they wanted to make it look like candlelight. Mm -hmm. um, when I joined the company, I think it was 2007 when I started doing their work, um, he was ha open to change. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, like, I wanted to bring in more cool light. And mm -hmm. I think he, you, I, I realized there was still a way to make it look like he wanted without it always having to look muddy and warm. Not that it did, you know, just that it can. A lot of amber can look that way. So, um, yeah, uh, so he, he's not so into that anymore, <clears throat> lighting-wise. You know, he likes very theatrical effects. Um, but it's a great company to work for. It's very, the most stressful um, periods of my year when I do Opera Italia, only because of the speed mm -hmm. and the size of the shows. Uh, the company's amazing. I, I think Marshall and Jeanette are the most unique people I know. They're like no other, they're, they're, they're strange and wonderful and um, passionate. They live it, like they live their work. Sorry, just give us their full names. Um, Marshall Pinkowski mm -hmm. and Jeanette, um, Jeanette Zing. Zing, okay, yeah. that's good, yeah. thank you. Not to put you on the spot there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so go on, sorry, go on. So how do you approach? Um, so what I do is um, I tend to use Basic systems for every upper atelier show because I know there's wing, but they're not always in the same space. So I often have to move the systems around. So I'll use a basic side light system, backlight system. Depending on where the drops are, I'll have to light some drops. Um, and footlights are a big thing. Um, and then I'll start to add what I need. So I'll take a basic plot from the year before. I'll look and then I'll rejig it. Um, I always have to change stuff up. Uh, and then I, get, I, hand, I have to do a shop order. There's no gear in the Elgin, except for a big front light moving rig, yeah. which is a good and bad thing. And then, um, yeah, and then we have lots of meetings, lots of rehearsals to talk through the piece. And as fast, it's like gangbusters. You go in, you hang that thing. You have eight hours to focus it. Often we're behind on the focus. So, so basically what I find, I used to bring in scrollers and all this stuff. And, you know, that stuff takes time to chase down. All, any sort of DMX connections, like anything like that, takes time. And so I used to be like, tick, tick, tick. They'd be trying to figure out why DMX wasn't working or whatever. And then, so I stopped bringing, I pretty much stopped bringing all that stuff in. I just thought, how can I make this as simple and effective as possible? So usually I bring in maybe 150 lamps max. Um, they have this big front light moving rig, so that helps a lot. Um, so I can get all my front light, my specials out of that. There's 18 VLs in the front rig. Um, and are those VL 1000s or yeah, VL, yeah, the tungsten ones. Yeah. Um, and you know sometimes that's hard, like <clears throat> to get a good, even front light wash. You really want to stand and focus that, and it's harder to do with a moving light system, especially under pressure. But it's great for specials, and gobos and all of that stuff. So. And then, and then we queue. We have maybe four to six hours to get some queuing in before the first piano tech. Wow. And sometimes you don't even get it, depending on how behind you are with everything else. Uh, so the first piano tech, then you're lighting over top of it. The next day you have 
eight hours of lighting time. Then you have a uh, orchestra rehearsal. Then the next day, a bit more lighting, a dress rehearsal, and then you're it. That's it. You're done. <laughs> so it's fast and furious. Yeah. Uh, and and what about the Versailles? Going to the Versailles Opera yeah, House? Is I've that been right? there. This will be my third time going there. And that's touring with the Opera Italia. Yeah. So we, we basically we take a show that we've done in Toronto and we bring it there. And it is the first year I went, we brought our mead, which we're bringing back this year. And I had been in the middle of a ton of texts. And I was like, you know, I'm going to, I was complaining. I remember complaining about it. Oh, I have to go to France to put this show in. And I'm really tired and it's going to be a ton of work. And I got there and it was, there's something about that place. First of all, I mean, the crew and the space is amazing. And being in the palace is incredible. But it was, it was wonderful. I mean, just the environment and, um, the reaction we got from the audience on opening night was they like stomped their feet for eight minutes. They loved it so much. You know, we were nervous because it's Canadian English company bringing French Baroque to France. <laughs> and, you know, in Europe, traditionally in Europe in the last 20 years, 30 years, it's been all this weird, defragmented, weird opera stuff, mm -hmm. right? Like how weird can you make it? So Baroque opera has not been popular. And it's starting to be, you know, Marshall's really, his company's taking off. He did a, a premiere in Salzburg and La Scala, and people love it because it's like the old is the new. Mm -hmm. um, and they loved it. Yeah. They love it. So then last year we brought Per Se there, and then this year we're bringing our mead back. And it's, I really love going. It's really great. I think I saw Per Se last year. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. I was really kind of struck. I had never seen an opera Italia piece, which is ridiculous. But um, I was kind of struck how sumptuous it visual, was visual all oh visual god i mean the, the tricky i really learned a lot with that company because you have to learn how to like paint to drops which is a skill we don't have as lighting designers no. anymore i was going to ask you what your approach is <clears throat> yeah. because everything's just kind of squished together there and yeah. you have to get gear into light it how well, do you approach that i work really closely with gerard who's the designer and he basically always says less is better mm -hmm. you know if you overlight because those mm. the shadows the light and the depth is all painted into yeah. those drops if you overlight them they'll look flat yeah. So I tend to always throw breakup at them, soft, soft, soft from the balcony rail or as kind of flat front as I can, sometimes high from like the first electric effect I can reach it, and just touch in the light on it, um, and sometimes even just footlight. So you need to bring it forward a little bit um, just to give it dimension, but it's a fine balance. And you can't, and, and I find the texture on them is good because you don't want it to be too flat, but I've learned over the last seven years that I've worked with them for eight years how to light them now. And sometimes I get it wrong. Sometimes he's like, mm, too much light, wrong color. <laughs> like there's always, because there's so much detail in them. And sometimes they're all this weird perspective. You have to watch that you don't light those too much. Sometimes we don't light them at all in a scene. Mm -hmm. And they they just pop forward anyways. I remember doing a um, TNB, Theater New Brunswick show that had a Trump Loy main cut drop yeah and it looked best when we just lit it with bounce yeah when it was in the dark the minute exactly. i turned the light on you went oh wait a second flat flat, <laughs> flat. Yeah, exactly it's meant <laughs> yeah. to have depth and if it just yeah. looks a bit mysterious then all that depth comes out what i love about marshall actually is that he he loves big visual effects and um for years you just do that with light but recently um he started using video <laughs> He's open to it. Like the, Interesting. So we did a piece called The Froschitz last year, which had a little bit of video, and then he liked that. And this year we did a piece called Alcina, mm -hmm. and he hired filmmakers, mm -hmm. and they filmed a whole bunch of, of content based in Gerard's designs and in moving and the dancers and everything. They did like a whole green screen in the studio. 
Then they hired a video, a video projector person, Raha, here to put it into a system that because they, they were filmmakers, they're not stage video people. And it was implemented beautifully. <clears throat> so that's what I like about Marshall is he's not stuck in his, even though he's got this traditional Baroque company, he's open to change and movement and he loves theatricality. Like he's not afraid of it at all. Some directors don't want to go too big because they feel it'll upstage. But for him, like all, everything is visual. Even like the detail he takes in the bows. If the bows are bad, he's like, ugh. Like, so he's fine, fine details, which I really admire about him. So I always like to finish up um, the conversation with a, t a discussion about training mm -hmm. and about what you think people should be learning, uh, maybe deficits you see or stuff that we're doing well in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, two themes that keep coming up, or two, I don't know, focus, foci, 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 <laughs> Fo yeah. foci that keep know. coming up. Um, NTS and Banff are continually... Yes. Uh, places that people congregate around. Um, I went to Ryerson, uh, and which is a. I'm not going to diss Ryerson. I had a great yeah. experience. I have there. a lot of people coming out of Ryerson. Uh, and my would, assistants. All yeah, lighting them. designers tend to. Yeah. It's a really great school for lighting design. It is. Um, there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, what do you think uh, people should be focusing on when they're going to train as a designer in theater? Um, art history, art. Film, all the things that aren't theater to start. And not, not, you know, like theater is important, theater history, all of that. Reading, like life and, and art, I think is huge, you know, and um, film is a great thing too. I, it's hard to say, like, I think it's really important to have a bigger vision than just the theater. Mm -hmm. You need to see everything in the world, and I think that's such a huge statement, but. I think I, I meet a lot of kids who are in school, especially Ryerson, actually, who are so gear-focused. Mm -hmm. Gear is important and everything, but not really. I mean, and a, light, a different lighting designer would say otherwise. Gear, to me, is like the tool. It's not the art. You can take the tool and make art with it. So art, just, you know, like uh, art history. Like, I didn't take an art history course in university, and I really wish I had. Mm -hmm. And so I tend to, on my shows... I, I'll, I will ga gather ideas from art history, from artists. Uh, often on a show, I'll take one artist or one period of artists, and I'll pull all those up and send them to the director as an idea. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that kind of thing. I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I think, again, everybody's different, but I think um, go to theater. <laughs> this is what I also see as a problem is a lot of schools. that They don't go and see theater. Mm -hmm. And not just Canadian theater. If you can get down to the States, if you can get to Europe, if you can go and see other ideas, every kind of theater, every kind of dance, don't get stuck in one, one idea. Because mm -hmm. if you want to be a lighting designer, you don't want to be a lighting designer for just one thing. Like my, my, uh, what I love in my career is that I get to do opera and dance and theater mm -hmm. and music. And... Um, and I, I never get tired, like I would get tired if I just had to stay with a script the whole time. So as much as you can go and see and much as you can explore and as many ideas, uh, be open. Be open to the world, be open to art, be open to artists, be open, go see every event you can. Um, and you know, gear is important to a degree. Do you think it's helpful for, um, especially a lighting designer, to be an electrician first? Do you think that that's kind of an essential component? Or I think everyone has a different path. For me, it was helpful mm -hmm. because it, um, <clears throat> it taught me a bit more about the tools of the trade, although the tools have changed so much. Mm -hmm. 
So I've had to sort of retrain. In fact, I, I, I was sick, I couldn't go, but I had signed myself up a couple of weeks ago to go do ion training. Mm -hmm. Because I think as a lighting designer, it's important that you know your console as well as, you know, not that you have to run it, but at least the syntax and how to use it. Um, so being an electrician was great for me, but it doesn't, you don't have to do that. I think you can come at it from a different approach, but you still need to know your shit. You need to know how to use your gear. You need to be organized. You know, organize, organization is another huge thing coming out of school. Time management, I always say, I wish they had taught a course and I would be a great teacher of it, time management, because if you're gonna have a freelance life and you wanna have a life as well, mm -hmm. you have to schedule yourself well. And the part of the issue um, as lighting designer is you tend to overlap projects. So you need how to learn how to do all that. And also I say to young people, like, have a life. Don't get so locked in the theater, uh -huh, even though you're focused on it, that you don't have a life. Because I think if you have a life, whatever that means to you, you're a better artist. If you're in the theater day and night and you're not doing anything else, you don't have a life. And so therefore you can't bring... I, I became a better lighting designer after I had kids mm -hmm. because somehow it became less important to me. And... When it became less important to me, I became better at it. I wasn't so stressed by it. Yeah, there's also a certain preciousness we have about our art as yeah. theater people. And I feel like it's such a collaborative experience. It that is. You cannot... Can't be a narcissist. God, you can't hold on to ideas just because you think it looks beautiful. You have to let it go sometimes if it doesn't exactly. respect the piece, right? Yeah, you need to let go of your ego a little bit, too. And I think living and... Uh, maturing that takes time because I have seen a lot of lighting designers even my age but a lot of young ones too who if a set designer comes up to them and says and they don't they're, they're offended by the note or by the idea and I think that's not a good way to work you have to be open to the process and know that whatever whoever has put input in that lighting design it's still your lighting design it's still you know but you don't have to own it I'm never have ego around that you know I have a good healthy ego but um you know, I, when I, a show does well because of the show, not just because of the lighting, that makes me happier. Well, that's terrific. I think we'll end it there. Thank you Great. so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. That was a pleasure. Thanks, Bonnie. And that was lighting designer Bonnie Beecher speaking to me from Soul Pepper Theatre in May of 2015. Next time, set designer Steve Lucas joins me for a chat. The music for this podcast is Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com forward slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, support us on patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you try to pronounce Baluchtungsmeister. Baluchtungsmeister. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the Title Block. <laughs>